There was a, uh, a family who had just finished having dinner and the, the sun had set and they'd had a, an enjoyable dinner together and the mom thought, well, hey, we've got a little bit of time before bedtime, maybe we should clean the house a little bit. And so she, she asked her son, would you um, go out on the porch? I had left the broom on the far side of the porch. Um, and our little boy looked at her and said, mom, I don't want to go outside, it's, it's dark outside. And the, the mother looked at him reassuringly and said, son, you don't have to be afraid of the dark. Jesus is out there. He'll take care of you and protect you. He still wasn't convinced. And he, he said, are you sure? Are you sure Jesus is out there? And she said, yes, Jesus is everywhere. And he's, he's ready to come to your help whenever you're needing him. So the boy kind of walked over to the, to the door and opened it just a little bit. And the darkness poured into the house and he said, Jesus, Jesus, if you're out there, could, could you help me and bring me the broom? <laughs> well, I don't know about you if you're afraid of the dark. Uh, maybe some of you still are. But in America, they say that 11% of the U.S. population has a fear of the dark. Um, they even have a, a scientific term for that. It's called achluophobia. Or it's also known as myctophobia or scotophobia or nyctophobia. And I think if they had a phobia for trying to pronounce hard scientific words, I'd have that phobia. <laughs> Last week, we began a six-part series on the life of David through the Psalms. And as we look at David, we see some tremendous uh, days of victory in his life and also some days of great failure. But throughout Scripture... He is characterized as a man with a heart after God. Last week, Will Davis uh, took us through Psalm 34 and 1 Samuel 21. And it was a time in David's life when uh, there was great fear in his life. And yet he was able to overcome that fear with faith. Today, we want to look at Psalm 57. It's been associated with an event in David's life that was a very dark time for him. In fact, it's attributed to when Saul was pursuing him to take his life and David hides in a cave seen in 1 Samuel 24. But let's read Psalm 57 together um, with me. So we can get this going. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to the God most high. To God who accomplishes all things in me, he will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among the lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your name be glorified above the earth. Am I on the right slide here? No. Lost you guys a long time ago. There we go. Thank you. Sorry about that. They have prepared. I did that one. Nope, no, that was it. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. And they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. 
Awake, harp and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. You know, upon first reading this, it, it really comes out as this, this beautiful psalm of praise. And it's kind of easy for me to get the sense that David had kind of just gotten through a hard day, and, but he's been victorious, and he's, he's chilling back on a rock, and he's, he's got his lyre out, and, and he's composing this beautiful psalm to God. And he says, be exalted, O God, above the earth. No, no, that's all right. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And he, it just comes out as he's writing this song. You guys are laughing at my singing. They're not going to bring me up there. But in real life, this is not the situation that David found himself in. He was fleeing before Saul to save his life. So how can this be? How can David have this attitude of praise in the midst of such dark and difficult circumstances in his life? And is, is that kind of experience limited to one of Israel's most cherished kings, or is it really meant to be true for you and for I as well? These are questions that trouble me. To get a handle on that, maybe just let's look quickly at just the structure of the psalm. It's really divided up into to two sections. Um, and, and, and remember, this is, these are lyrics to a song. Section one is, is really David pleading to God. He's pleading for protection. And he, there's an affirmation of God's faithfulness and character, but there's also this description of tremendous darkness, of danger all around him. The second section is really a, a section of praise, of thanksgiving. He goes back and he describes that darkness, but then he also praises God for his strength. And he affirms God's character, love, and faithfulness. And then finally, there's that refrain, verse 5 and verse 11. It really is the theme of David's heart. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Well, let's look at the first section. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. In the ESV, it talks about uh, storms of destruction. And I think for us, we could think of that as storms of darkness in our lives. But what are these storms of darkness that David is referring to? To understand that, I think we've got to go back a little bit in history. When we look at 1 Samuel 10, David, or, or King Saul was anointed the first king of Israel. And, um, you know, it was a challenging time for, the, for Israel as it was coming together. There was uh, attacks on all sides from some of the nations that they had conquered. And for a season, King Saul was very faithful and he did a great job. But eventually he started to pl want to please men more than obey God. And there was a battle that they went out to fight and um, Israel was victorious, but Saul did not fulfill all of the commands that God had given him. And when he came back from battle, um, the prophet Samuel was there and he confronted him with his sin. And Saul started making all sorts of excuses. Yeah, but, but this and but that. And so finally, Samuel says, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul kind of seeks forgiveness from God, but God had already kind of decided he's going to choose a new king. Enter on the scene, 
David, shepherd boy. God directs Samuel to anoint David, that he would become the next king. But remember, Saul is still the reigning king at this time. So Saul starts getting afflicted by this evil spirit. And his counselors and the court guys come together and they say, you know what, if we could find somebody that, that played a musical instrument really well, maybe that would calm Saul's spirit and he would, he would be okay. And so they searched around and who did they find? David, the little shepherd guy playing his lyre with a beautiful voice, not like mine. Um, and so they bring David in to be part of the court. And, and while David's there serving in Saul's court, the Philistines attack Israel. And they are led by this giant of a guy named Goliath. All of them are shaking in their boots. I mean, their sandals. Um, but not David. David is there and he has this trust in God. He's, he's, he's willing to go out and fight who would become one of the first people that want him dead. David takes on Goliath. And astonishingly, David kills Goliath with a sling and a single stone in his faith. He marches out with the armies of Israel, and they find success everywhere that Saul sent them to go. And the Israelites are inspired by David, their new leader. And they cry out, King Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And so on the next day, Saul calls David in to his court to play for him again. And while David's playing, he picks up a spear, chucks it at him, try to kill him. And he does it twice, and David narrowly escapes. Now stay with me here. Stay with me. So now we have Goliath trying to kill David. Now King Saul wants David dead. So what does David decide to do? You know what any sane and courageous God-fearing man would do at that point who was in love with the king's daughter. He went and asked King Saul to marry his daughter, the guy who just tried to kill him. King Saul thinks about it a little bit, and he says, you know what? This could be my opportunity. Normally, I collect a dowry here. Maybe instead of some cash on the line, I send David off to kill some Philistines, and they kill him. Problem over for me. So he sends him out, and David not only succeeds in killing 100 Philistines, but he kills 200. And Saul has no choice but to give his daughter in marriage to him. And in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 18, it says, and as a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Are you getting the picture of how this is building? So next, Saul orders his son, Jonathan, and all of his servants to go find David and try and kill him. And they're about to do that, but Jonathan befriends Saul or David, and he and Michael help him escape through the palace window. Next, in, in 1 Samuel 19, we see that Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and to kill him in the morning. So King Saul sends his hitmen after David. David's outnumbered, so he flees to Gath. And he's fearful of King Ashish there. And so he, he kind of pretends to be insane. And that's what Will talked about last week in 1 Samuel 21. Then he leaves Gath and he hides in the cave of Adullam. Now the Philistines attack again, and they're out trying to kill him. Next, the Ziphites join in on the hunt for David, and they tell Saul where David is hiding. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 23. It says, now David and his men were in the wilderness near Moan, in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. And Saul heard of this and pursued David there. Now get the tension that's coming. So Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. And even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul and his men, they were closing in on him, and his men were about to capture him. You know, from a human point of view, David's death was imminent. 
Do you get the theme going on here? David had been anointed king by, by Samuel, but um, he is running for his life every day. He is running for his life. And so in David's case, that storm of darkness is really that everyone wanted him dead. The next place we find David, he's hiding in a cave in the wilderness and in Jedi with 3,000 of Israel's choicest men closing in on him to finish the job. So turning back to Psalm 57, I, I wanted us to understand a little bit of this context because I don't know if you're guilty of this like I am sometimes, but I can read Scripture and I can have this real passive voice. Um, there's really kind of two voices that we tend to use. One of them I think of is my church voice. You know, we use this around the table when we're maybe having our devotions or reading through Scripture and it, um, it's, everything's calm and pleasant. You guys used it just now when we were reading it together. It's kind of a constant, um, consistent, low, you know, emotion voice when we read Scripture. The other voice, uh, I call it my easy chair voice. Um, we've kind of, you know, gone through the day and you're, you're looking forward to having a quiet time and you kick back in your chair and you pull out the Bible and you open to one of your favorite Psalms and you just kind of read it through and you might not even say it out loud, but it's a soft voice. But understanding the context of what David was in helps us get a better sense for what was behind his plea, the feelings behind his plea before God. So we can't use our, our church voice or our lazy chair voice when we read Psalm 57. It's not the tone of what David was communicating. We kind of get a, a clue from this when we look at Psalm um, 142. David says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I reveal my trouble to him. Along the path I travel, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see no one stands up for me, for there is no refuge for me, no one who cares about me. David's heart is broken here as he's crying out to the Lord. So when he's talking about the storms of darkness and we read Psalm 57, we have to read it maybe more like this. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge until the destruction passes. I have no one else to turn to, nowhere else to go. You are all I have left. Verse 4, my soul, O Lord, is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. These guys want to kill me. Verse 6, they have prepared a net for my steps. And my soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. I thought it was game over. They themselves, though, fell into the midst of it. You see, David begins Psalm 57 with this plea that wells up from the inner parts of his soul. In the despair of the moment, this desperate cry for God to intervene in this dark place in his life when death seemed imminent. So what about you? Most of us have probably never been chased by armies wanting to kill us, although some who have served in the military have faced that. But what is your dark place? Have you ever been in a very dark place? See, I think sooner or later, all of us experience that in our lives. 
For some, it's the experience of despair and darkness through maybe rustling with a habitual sin. Bound by this illusion of a temporary satisfaction rather than finding real purpose in God, we we hide in the cave and think that the darkness will cover that and we, we wrestle to get out, but we fail again and again. But that's not how God intended us to live. For others, maybe it's through physical or mental illness. I know that many among us have struggled with cancer and lived through those long, long days of chemotherapy or radiation, places where you're so tired you can't even, you can't even get your mind around reading scripture or praying. Others have just suffered through long-term pain, maybe from a car accident or migraines. Others have had that long-term pain and the doctors can't even tell you why. But you suffered long and long time. And you wonder, will I ever feel normal again? Others have wrestled with depression when, when life just seems overwhelming and the light dims. Still others have felt that darkness through broken relationships. You know, and that, and that does not just happen when um, there's maybe divorce in the family, as terrible as that is. But I, I was thinking about that a little bit and how even in high school, I remember how strong the groups were and how cliquish they were and how, how, how hard it was when you felt that rejection from friends. Still others maybe have felt that darkness when you've gotten perhaps in great debt and you've seen how just the, the lack of resources cripples and takes away the joy in your life. Others through isolation, a feeling of loneliness. You've reached out, but it seems like no one is reaching back to you. Work can be a place of great darkness at times too. It can be a place where there's offense and abuse, where there's tremendous devaluing sometimes of you and your work. I remember serving as a missionary in Mexico, and we'd been there about seven years. And over that time, we had been church planting in Mexico City, and we'd seen God, um, through different folks, be able to raise up other churches. And we were working together with them, and we were seeing God bring that together. And we formed this association of 17 different churches all across Mexico. And it seemed like God was working in a mighty way. And then one of the previous presidents of that association who we'd known a long time and worked with a lot, um, who wasn't currently the president, began to feel jealous about the new uh, board of directors and what they were doing. And so he gathered two churches together and he met in secret and they elected their own board of governors all by themselves. And then he took it to the government and they registered that as a legal entity, as the new association leadership. And then they asked all of the missionaries to leave the country. And they kicked out 15 of the other churches in the association. And I'm thankful to say that's not how the story ended. But let me tell you, those were dark days. Wondering where has God gone when the enemy seemed to have free reign amongst such a beautiful work that had begun. All of us will face dark times. The question is, how will we respond to them? So David is being chased for his life. And finally, there becomes this turning point for him. So remember, Saul, with his 3,000 choice men from Israel, are hot on David's trail. And David takes refuge in the back of a cave near the sheep pens of Jedi on the western side of the Dead Sea. Can you imagine what this looks like? 1 Samuel 24. 
verses 3 to 7. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. Can you imagine King Saul? He's, he's hotly pursuing David. They're, they're, they're getting closer and closer, and, and all of a sudden he says, Oh, hey, look, there's a spring. I think maybe the donkeys could use a little help right now. He had been searching for hours for a rest stop with a, with a restroom, with a bathroom, and all he could find was a cave room. And so he stops the troops and dismounts, and he goes into the cave. I love this about God. I mean, that's in Scripture, you know, realness of life. What God does is he takes that army of 3,000 and he puts it into one person, King Saul. And what's he do? He sends him into the cave to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were staying in the back of the cave in verse 4. And so his men said to him, and I imagine they, they whispered because they're in the cave, look, this is the day that the Lord told you about when he said, I will hand your enemy over to you and you can do with him whatever you desire to do. And then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. I mean, can you picture what that looks like? I mean, the guys are all in there. They're crowding in the back of the cave. The scouts had told them they're coming. There's 3,000 guys out there. And all of a sudden, King Saul gets off and he starts walking towards the cave and like, dude, he's... That's the king, and he's coming in here. Does he see us? I don't think he does. Man, David, this is it, man. This is the opportunity we've been waiting for. God has given you an opportunity to do him in. I mean, I mean, they must have been just beside themselves. I don't know how they could say that in a whisper. I think David was tempted at first. Cut off the head of the snake, and your problems are over. You know, this was his big chance. Maybe this was his opportunity to save himself. But God had another option and planned as well. In verse 5, it says, After David's conscience bothered him, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. This was this, a huge, magnanimous choice for David. You know, he had the option to stay in the dark and to focus on his circumstances and hate the cause of that circumstance and to get payback. Or he had the option to come out of the cave and to focus on God and trust in him and to live by faith. You know, I think when we face difficult times, don't we face similar choices as well. We have that choice of being able to blame others. Or I think more common, blame God. Blame God for those circumstances, for the darkness I'm experiencing, and then take matters into my own hands. Isn't that one of our options? Or to trust in the Most High God to accomplish His purpose in His timing. You see, in that deciding moment between despair and faith, David chooses faith. So we see in that first section, David pleads to the Lord for protection and for change. In the second section, we see David's heart for God. He kind of has this quick recap 
of the peril that he's in with the enemies present. And in verse 6, he says, They have prepared a net for my steps, and my soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me, and they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. What I love is that David is real about his circumstances. He doesn't try and spiritualize them or make them sound not so difficult or dangerous. But there's also something in his soul that cries out not to give up. And in verse 7, he says, But my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. David is resolved not to give in to the circumstances, but to keep his focus on God. To rise with the dawn. So how can David move from this darkness and despair to a posture of praise? It wasn't that his circumstances changed. They didn't. And it was not an act, a simple act of his will or just blind faith. But I think if we can understand this about David, then we get a clue into who he is and how he was able to get out of that dark place. And we also can have a heart for God despite the darkness like he did. So let's take a look at the text. In in verse 2, David says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things to me. So when when David uses this term, God most high, it's really a compound word in Hebrew. And it's this combination of of two words for God. One is El. And El is a a word that they used for God in that day. Um, It could have been a pagan god, a false god, or it could have been the God of Israel. It's just kind of a generic term for God. But then David takes it to this whole other level when he says Elion. Because Elion is most high. And so he's declaring that the God of Israel is not like the God of the Philistines. It's not like the gods of the day, of the pagans. It is the most high God, the one who is above all. It is El Elyon. So how does David come to this conclusion? How does he know El Elyon? Let's look at some of those circumstances in his life. The first one I think of is David as a shepherd out watching the sheep, perhaps at night, staring up into the heavens. And he begins to contemplate who is God, who made all of this? How did it come into being? And he writes for us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day pour out speech and night after night they communicate knowledge. Or Psalm 33, six through nine, he says, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all of the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into a heap, and he puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth tremble before the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. See, David peered out into creation, and he he witnessed the power and authority of God over all things. He is El Elyon. David, I think, also heard the stories of God's mighty works in the past. He had heard how God had delivered them from Egypt and how they had crossed the Red Sea, how the the children of Israel had crossed the Jordan and entered into the Promised Land and, and gotten rid of all the inhabitants there and conquered it. 
He had heard the song of Moses, perhaps, in Deuteronomy 32, and Moses said, Remember the days of old when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man and he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of sons of Israel. You see, David knew the stories of God's mighty works throughout history. And he knew that no one could thwart God's plans. He is above all other gods. Or perhaps it's through the promises of God. Remember, David was anointed king by, by Samuel. And God promised him on that day. It says, the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. David had received God's promise to him by faith. And he knew that God is true to his word. What promises has God given you? And finally, I think of just David knowing God most high through his personal experiences. He was delivered from wild animals as he was uh, talking with Saul before he went out to face Goliath. Saul's kind of trying to dissuade him. There's this little shepherd, you know, what does he know about fighting? And, and David says, um, you know what? The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David defeated Goliath. The giant in his life went down. He had numerous victories, and he saw God at work through his own experiences. He experienced God's faithfulness personally at other times in his life. And so my question for us is, how have you experienced God's faithfulness in your life? What are those times when you look back over history and you say, God was there. It was undeniable. God was there. God saved me. God led me through that dark time. God provided. Remember those times. How have your knowledge of Scripture and your experiences shaped your view of God? So how would you identify God? Is he your God pretty tall? Is he your God just big enough? Or is he the most high God that you are convinced without the shadow of a doubt that he is above all others. David had a genuine relationship with the God most high. And in the midst of darkness, he turned to the one who was above all. Next, God, David appeals to God's character and faithfulness. In verse 2, he read, To God who accomplishes all things for me, for he will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. You see, David understood that God is a redeeming God. And that although pain and suffering are part of this world and they come from all sorts of different things, God ultimately has the power and authority to redeem the worst of circumstances for our good and for his glory. Perhaps David had heard those stories from days of old of God's sovereignty when Joseph turned to his 11 brothers in Genesis 50, 20 and said, you intended this for harm, but God intends it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many. Not only was the power of God's authority um, present, but David also understood God was faithful and true. So what are those undeniable 
understandings that you have about God this morning, about his divine character and power that help you trust your life in the faithful and loving hands of the most God, the God most high. I want you to just contemplate that for a moment. What are those things? Lock those in your brain today. Refresh them in your mind and hold fast to them. David goes on in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. You see, David's experience of walking with God wells up in trust for him even in the darkest moments of his life. So so I want you to kind of get this contrast that's going on in this psalm as David goes back and forth between his plea, his cry out to God, and his praise and his thanksgiving to him. David is not in la-la land here. He's very real about what's going on in his life. He certainly understood dark days. And in Psalm 57, he is smack dab in the middle of a fight for his life to see another day. And in these 11 verses, we just see his honest reflection of his grief, the peril of his situation, and yet his steadfast heart after God. So how is he able to kind of see through this darkness of his circumstances? Well, first, let me say that I think he was real with God about his sufferings. And I want to encourage you, be real with God. He knows what you're going through. He understands that. And it's okay to cry to him. It's okay to be honest with how you're feeling, to be real with him. But then David also refuses to give up. He doesn't blame God for his circumstances. Instead, he chooses to fix his eyes on the proven character and the power and authority of the God most high that he knows and trusts. Friends, I think David's response should give us hope as well. It's a hope that despite the dark days that we face, God is true to his word. And his divine character is one of justice and righteousness and love and faithfulness. He is proven and he is worthy of our trust. And so David ends the psalm with his refrain. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Rather than focus on my circumstances and the the darkness that surrounds me, I'm choosing to look on the character and the power and authority of God. And when we have that personal relationship with the true and living God as David did, we can face those dark days and dark seasons in our life when we find that turning our gaze upon him changes everything. Today, the God most high has come to to us. His name is Jesus. He came to be a light in the world. He came to take upon himself the punishment that was due each one of us from our own sinfulness. And he made a way through the darkness back to the light for each one. And by faith in that gift of grace that he's given to us, we can know God and have a heart after him just like David did. Jesus is our divine rescuer. Remember the little boy at the beginning of the story when he cried out to his mom, is is Jesus really out there? And his mother responds, yes, I'm sure he is. He is everywhere. And he's always ready to help you when you are in need. 
Like the little boy in the dark who asked Jesus to hand him the broom, we all are in need of divine rescue from the dark places in our lives. But Jesus is there, ready to help. So if you don't know Jesus today, maybe this is the time for you to to put away the things of the past and to turn towards Christ and to find all things new in him, to ask him forgiveness and to accept him into your life, to follow him faithfully. If you find yourself in a dark place today where hope has dimmed, where the circumstances seem overwhelming, I want to encourage you to focus on the power and authority and on the character of God, to lift your eyes to him, not on those circumstances. Maybe you need someone just to stand with you, to pray with you. Maybe you're not in crisis today. You just need someone to wrap their arms around you and to to pray with you this morning. I want to encourage you after the service, come up front and take some time to pray with one of our prayer partners. Would you pray with me as we close today? Father, in a lot of ways, this is a hard subject to talk about because the truth is darkness is there. The truth is pain and suffering are are terrible. The truth is sometimes we despair almost to that point of death. And the truth is sometimes we've allowed those circumstances to really take over in our own lives. And we ask forgiveness for that. And I thank you so much for David Here's this guy had so much going against him, so many things trying to take his life out. And if anyone had the, the right to kind of complain about that and to sulk and to stay in the cave, it was him. And yet he chooses not to. He chooses somehow to, to trust in you, to place his heart and his mind upon you from his experiences, from the ways he's seen you act in, cre- in creation, from the, the stories of Scripture that he had learned and memorized. And Lord, I just pray for us this morning that you would build in us this heart after you despite any of those circumstances that we face. Give us the courage and the faith to trust you, to set our heart upon who you are. Because when we raise our gaze to you, Lord, it changes everything. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that you are always there and that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be with us forever. And Lord, if, if there is someone this morning, I pray that they would that doesn't know you, may they just simply ask you into their lives today, asking your forgiveness and seeking you to lead them out of the darkness and into the light, to be the one that directs their lives from now on, and to fill them with a hope that comes in knowing God most high, El Elyon. And we praise you and we thank you, Lord. For those who are suffering this morning, I pray that you would wrap your arms around them, let them know they are not alone, They are never alone, that you are with them. Renew their strength, Lord. Give them a new passion and hope based in you. Lord, may we stand together as a church around all those who are facing those dark times. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. It's in Christ's glorious and risen name that we pray these things. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.